The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Jeffrey Wasserstrom, the Chancellor's Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History at the University of California, Irvine. He is also a director of the National Committee. Jeff has recently been working on a revised edition of China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, due out in June. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about recent developments in China and things people ought to keep in mind when thinking about China. Not surprisingly for a book by an historian, China in the 21st century begins with history. Could you talk generally about the reasons you think that China's history, let's say Confucianism, the idea of the mandate of heaven and the opium wars, sets the stage for an understanding of contemporary China? I think bringing history into a book about contemporary China is crucial for two very different reasons, though interrelated ones. One reason is because what happens in the past has important implications for the present. Kinds of that um, that are that happen in today's China are carryovers, adaptations of things that happened in in China's past, and you can see that from many kinds of aspects. Even to understand the rituals of the Chinese Communist Party, you need to think of some of them as defined by rejecting things that were done by the imperial order and in other ways, adaptations of things that were done in, the, in imperial times. Quite self-consciously, the um, ceremonies that are now held by um, the Chinese Communist Party are meant to show um, involvement and representation of the people in, in very symbolic ways, even when, when Mao would stand atop Tiananmen and look out into, over masses of people who were gathered in the square um, to, to honor him that was an inversion of what had happened in imperial times when the emperor would would engage in rituals behind closed doors that kept the populace out. On the other hand, there are certain things, if that was a rejection of imperial patterns, in other ways, um, there have just been adaptations of them. In many ways, the lives led by um, at least some Chinese Communist Party leaders are as separated from ordinary life, daily life concerns as the lives of the emperors um, once were. We have now in all the reports about um, pollution and food safety, reports have come out about how China's top, top leadership eats different foods, drinks different kinds of water, and is other ways cushioned from the problems of everyday life um, within Zhongnanhai, the, the complex of the leaders, very much in some ways like the way the emperors were. But the second way in which history is important is not because of what happened, but because of the stories that are told of what, what happened, the way, in which, um, the way in which the past is used and mobilized, whether by, by protesters who invoke um, legacies from the past in, in justifying their, their moves for change in the present. Um, in 1989, when the Tiananmen protesters took to the streets, in 1989, they were drawing quite directly on the symbolic legacy of protests of 1919. They saw themselves as continuing in a series of historic struggles. 
And so that kind of invocation of the past for symbolic reasons is very important. Whether, whether there's a direct connection between events or not, the stories that are told about the past are very important. You can't understand what's going on now with um, the Beijing's tensions with Japan over disputed islands without knowing that there is a history there, but also without knowing that there's a specific set of uses of that history. So for the last um, 20 years in particular, the Communist Party of China, while it's felt other claims to legitimacy slipping, has made very, very intensive use of stories about mistreatment by foreign powers in the past to try to convince the Chinese people that even if they're getting frustrated with the way the Communist Party governs the country, they should never forget, never forget that there were times in the past when the Chinese Communist Party helped China stand up to to foreign bullies. So that sort of use of the past as well as actual legacies is important. Let's talk a little more about the Chinese Communist Party's hold on power. Some people say that it's based, at least in part, on the rapid economic growth of the last 30-plus years. Many experts see that growth slowing down. How do you think that will affect how the party rules? Well, I think the party's in a real dilemma right now because it's had a set of stories that's told the populace about why it deserves to rule. Um, going back to 1949, and some of those stories have completely lost their credibility. One of the stories they used to tell uh, to justify their rule was that the Communist Party officials were incorruptible, whereas the Nationalist Party that had been in power in the 30s and 40s had been filled with corrupt officials who cared more about their own wealth than they did about the good of the nation. The Communist Party officials were totally different. Well, that kind of story just doesn't hold water anymore. There's so much known about the corruption within the Communist Party that that doesn't work anymore. Another story they told in the 1949 and the 50s was that the Communist Party was determined to equalize wealth within China so there would no longer be a gap between rich and poor. Well, we've seen the gap between rich and poor become enormous in China. So that story doesn't, doesn't hold weight either. So what's left is this nationalist story that I referred to in answering an earlier question and a newer story that's been particularly powerful since the late 1970s with the economic booms and particularly powerful in the 1990s and beyond, which is that whether or not you like what the Communist Party is doing, you've got to give them credit for overseeing a period of tremendous economic growth. Now, a lot of people benefited from that growth um, some other people were left behind, but, but were convinced that their turn might come. If the economic boom slows, then the people who are left behind may think, well, we're never going to get our chance and may become, become even angrier than they are right now. But the challenge right now is that even people who benefited from the economic growth are now starting to wonder if their life has really been getting better, if their quality of life is really rising the way this story says it should be if they have to worry about the air they breathe and the water they drink, the health of their children. So the, the Communist Party is, is at one hand, in one, on the one hand, addicted to continued growth in order to keep the people who've been left behind feeling that their chance may come, but also too much economic growth or more of this kind of rapid runaway growth, even if it were possible, would strain, um, 
would strain the support of the sort of people who are doing well but are starting to wonder whether it's all worth it. So this is, this is a real challenge going forward. You've mentioned pollution several times, and it's certainly been in the Western press lately, air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution. What can be done, what is being done to address China's environmental degradation, and what are the implications of pollution for ordinary people and for the authorities? Well, I think it's uh, this the pollution has been getting enormous play in the western press and and some of it may seem, you know, somewhat overblown because for for many many Chinese there's still day-to-day economic concerns might loom larger, but it is notable I think that um this year we've seen the first time when um by most reports there have been more protests that have had something to do with pollution than the other top cause for discontent in recent years. Until now, you could count on the largest single cause of unrest being land expropriation battles. And so now these kinds of environmental ones have have topped that. So I think it it is a a growing um, problem. We've seen a rise in these sorts of um, ground-level protests in recent recent years. I think what what it links up to... um, is in part a credibility issue for the government. And so the government needs both to both to do pragmatic things to, to better protect the environment and also convince the people once again that they genuinely care about that. And so the, the, the interplay between things that are, are just harmful, like breathing um, toxic air, and the things that strain credibility, which would be, for example, the Chinese government doctoring statistics about just how bad the air was or um, pretending, describing heavy smog as fog. I mean, these kinds of things strain the credibility. So what we have seen at least some of in the past um, few months, which is a, a good sign, but it's only a sign of one part of this, is a bit more transparency about things like um, releasing figures on, um, on levels of air pollution. But there's still this problem of, of credibility, the fact that um, which links to both pollution and things like poisoned food or food safety issues, um, in which the government has just lost a lot of um, credibility in the eyes of the people about genuinely caring for the health and well-being of ordinary people. It was striking to me. I was just um, I just went from Shanghai to Hong Kong um, on short visits um, a month ago. And it's always interesting for me to see what it is that is available in Hong Kong that people on the mainland are sort of desiring and feel that they wish they had. And, you know, 30 years ago, it was all the luxury goods in in department stores. And now you you have those on the mainland, too. And then uh, a while later, it was books that could only be published in Hong Kong and couldn't be published in the mainland that dealt with taboo subjects. And there's still that. But at this latest trip, it was clear that um, the most, the hot-button commodity that was available in Hong Kong but not on the mainland was um, baby formula that you could trust as not being um, laced with, um, with dangerous substances. And there were announcements at the Hong Kong airport when I landed reminding people traveling to the mainland that they were only allowed to, to bring two cans of powdered milk with them. And that was just very striking to me of just just how endemic this 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 lack of trust in the government's care for people's well-being is. 
seems to me that also threatening credibility is the corruption that's everywhere. Could you talk about the Bossy Lai case and its implications for China's governance and for the confidence in ordinary confidence of ordinary people in the government? Does such a high-profile case really matter to the ordinary person, or is that person more concerned with corruption at a local level? That's a great question, and I think it's an important one. I, I think. The takedown of Bo Xilai, which obviously is one of the um, one of the things that happened that made me convinced that a 2010 book needed to be updated um, if it was going to really be talking about contemporary China um, to bring that in, into the mix. And it's dealt with in the second edition of the book. Um, I think the Bo Xilai case certainly matters, but um, it doesn't send to me at least, a sign of a, of a sea change in the treatment of, of corruption as a serious issue, that yes, Bo Xilai is being, going to be punished for corruption, but it's quite clear that the reason he was targeted also had to do with factional struggles and that he was on the side of a losing faction. So it would really send a powerful signal to me and I think to some others that um, Xi Jinping, or that the, the top leadership was really serious about dealing with corruption at all levels, would be if there was a prosecution for corruption of a high-ranking official who was part of the faction in power uh, or had close ties to the people in power. And we know there are um, corrupt officials uh, of whom that can be said, um, or at least family members of very high-ranking officials. So what you've seen is um, for a lot of ordinary Chinese, what, what is most galling is local corruption. And the government, the central government, is quite happy at times to prosecute and um, weed out um, corrupt local officials and try to cultivate an idea that the center is immune from those kinds of problems and the problems are, are, are always just local officials doing things that if the center knew, they would try to stop. And this is something that's, that's clearly a fiction, that a lot of the um, so-called outrages by local officials are things that the center knew about. But it's a useful fiction for the central authorities in trying to deflect the anger about corruption, which is, is deep, widespread, and has been around for decades. Anti-corruption posters were among the first that went up during the 1989 protests, something that, uh, that Americans often forget when they think of those protests as being completely about democracy. Early on, they were largely about anger at corruption and nepotism. What's interesting also about the Bo Lai case is in following the way he's described, he was somebody who was clearly making a bid for very high central authority and was part of, of the center in terms of power. But when he was taken down, Increasingly, the stories that were told about him tried to paint him more and more like a rogue local official. A lot was made of his Chongqing power base, the fact that what he was doing was in a place far from the center, and it could be presented as a kind of rogue figure. Now, when he was um, seen as somebody who might be rising to a high level, there were, there were central officials who were going out to Chongqing and praising what was going on there. But now in a kind of rewriting of the recent past, there's a way of saying, you know, if only we knew 
how things were going on there. We wouldn't, the center would not have allowed such bad things to happen in the locale. It seems to me that one of the many ironies about the Boise Lai case is how popular he was among the people when he was mayor of Dalian, when he was governor of Liaoning, when he went to Chongqing. People really supported him, thought he cleaned things up, that he promoted economic development in a way that helped a lot of people who maybe previously had felt that they'd been ignored. Now the story has changed completely. Yeah, I mean, I think there are still there is still some reservoir of of um, of popular support for him. There seems to be from people that I've talked to or read things by who've spent time in Chongqing. Um, I think Bo Xilai became somebody onto whom different people projected their hopes for China, or there were things they were dissatisfied with about the way China was going. And they saw in him an alternative, whatever kind of alternative it was. And it was it was a very complicated um, way he presented himself, both being concerned with um, certain kinds of development, but also that were very forward looking in whatever way, but also connecting himself to the red song, the popular singing of red songs that harken back to a Mao era when people could say the government um, for all of its 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 problems seemed to care more about ordinary people. So he could he could um, link up to different kinds of aspirations and frustrations among among Chinese people. And then it was a very different different picture began to emerge when it became clear um, how draconian some of his his operating procedures were and how much he embodied not something totally different from um, the established order, but at times at least a sort of exaggerated version of it. I think we have time for one more question, and I'd like to ask you about the impact of demographic changes that are taking place in China, both the gender imbalance, significantly more males than females, and the rapid percentage growth and numeric growth in the older population. How are these shifts changing Chinese society, and what can the government do to address the issues? Yeah, they're, they're changing things in, in many different ways. Um, at just the economic level, the government is having to shift its strategy for um, for economic growth because it can't depend on this massive reservoir of um, new labor entering the labor force um, each year. It's important to remember that when the one-child policy or one or two-child policy, because in many cases people were allowed to have two children but no more, um, when that began, even though you'd think that would immediately shrink the size of labor coming into the labor force, it didn't initially because there was such a big bulge of population at the age of people just starting to have children. And so that's run out. So there's going to be now a, a quite dr dramatic tapering off of the number of new workers entering labor force. The big um, problem, though, is the government simultaneously, when it introduced these, these projects to limit birth size, often did things, they started to dismantle the social welfare net that, that was in place to take care of, um, of older citizens. And so it's, it's that kind of perfect storm of demographic factors that is um, creating so much um, 
so much anxiety in China now in thinking about the way forward that you both shifted responsibility for older people back onto um, younger generations at the same time you were shrinking um, those generations. So it's a, it's, a, it's a big issue facing the government. And it does seem that in, in light of it, the government may finally be moving away from that restrictive um, population control policy. But one issue there is that with economic growth, people often choose to have smaller family sizes. So it isn't as though um, doing away with the um, limitation to one child in, in Chinese cities will lead necessarily to more children being born because a lot of people in those cities are quite happy at this point to have only one child or perhaps no children. So it's going to be dealing with this and untangling both the mistakes that were made in too, too stringent enforcement of, of population control, but also the very big shift in all these demographic patterns. They're going to be dealing with this for not just years, but decades to come. What about the gender imbalance? The gender imbalance is, is heartbreaking. I mean, it's a heartbreaking, um, and again, I think needs to be understood as this combination, this this brutal combination of economic and um, ideological shifts at exactly the time that the government um, introduced the call for parents to only have one child. And they were saying that it didn't matter if that child was a boy or a girl. They were introducing economic policies in the countryside that allowed families to keep more of um, the wealth that they generated from family farms. And what had never gone away throughout all the social experiments of the Mao years was the tendency for daughters to marry into their husbands, to, for, for women from the countryside to move to a new village, to marry into their husband's um, village at, um, at marriage, and to move there and to bring children up in the husband's um, family. And so what you had was the government saying, on the one hand, um, it doesn't matter if you have a boy or a girl, and at the other hand, dismantling policies that made it less important whether you had a boy or a girl because suddenly the future of your your farm would depend on having labor power in the next generation. And so this led to these um, horrible developments, um, female infanticide early on in, in the new policy, and then after that increasingly sex-selective abortions. And that's really what... Um, what causes um, such uh, the gender imbalance, which in some areas is very extreme. So that's one more social problem for the government to worry about with this going forward. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a very sad situation, and it's hard to see exactly how you work your way out of that. But there are things that, there are things that mitigate it, including um, wives, um, being sought in less developed areas of China into more developed areas and also from neighboring countries flowing in. So adding to all the other um, things to worry about, there's the potential for, um, well, and some actual human trafficking. Okay. Let me ask you a question about China's new president, Xi Jinping, who's recently made his first trips as president overseas. What do you think that he's trying to accomplish on these trips, and why did he select the countries he selected for this first set of visits? This is part of 
an effort, I think, to do several things to both differentiate himself from his predecessor, while also continuing very much in line with things that um, that Hu Jintao did. In the kind of differentiation category, one of the things that that is different about him is he's a different style of leader. He's much more um, outgoing in terms of his personality. Um, Nicholas Kristof wrote that he expects Xi Jinping to be less robotic than Hu Jintao. And I think Xi Jinping definitely is, but that was setting the bar awfully low because Hu Jintao was one of the stiffest leaders of any country um, we've seen. So Xi Jinping is doing things differently at the level of style and including traveling with his wife and his wife making um, some some separate appearances. This is This is in some ways part of an ongoing effort to normalized um, Chinese leaders that we've seen in, in, in many ways in the kind of international sphere, including the increased use of the, of the name president as opposed to earlier ones like party general secretary or, or chairman. And you can still have those um, counterparts used sometimes, but increasingly there's the effort to um, use terms like president that map on more, more easily to um, leaders of, of certainly the U.S. leader and, and leaders of other major countries. Um, so there are a lot of differences in style, just as there have been a lot of differences in style um, internally with what Xi Jinping's um, been doing. But we're still waiting to see whether there are substantive differences to match that. And at least so far in the diplomatic realm, as well as in um, the other realms, it, it, it's, it's not clear yet how substantive um, the differences will be. So I think you know there's been a continuing effort over a long period of time in um, in Chinese high-level politics to show that there's a vision of the world that doesn't um, simply see the relationship to the United States as the only one that matters, and to flag connections to other um, powerful countries and to try to set up these things. So you can see that in some of the um, choices um, Xi Jinping makes. So. Um, I think we're we're still waiting to see at that um, at that level of, of of the first substantive signs of something new. The style is fascinating, but as with shifts in style, like calling for smaller banquets at home as a way of showing determination to fight corruption, if that if that goes along with other moves to create um, a more open, more transparent, um, more more in step with the popular will moves, then great. But but initially, it's it's hard to read too much into these stylistic things. Okay, we're at time. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and insights. We look forward to a continuing conversation. Me too. Pleasure. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs>